1899, Polish-born English novelist named Joseph Conrad published his short novella called Heart of Darkness, which has since become perhaps one of the most well-known books in all of the 20th century. It tells the story of Marlowe, who was a, a, a sailor that was hired by a Belgian trading company um, to, to captain a ship up the Congo River. And at the outset of the story, Marlowe is the quintessential European. He believes the African continent needs to be civilized, by European standards at least. But as Marlowe sails further into the heart of darkness, he discovers a previously untold brutality of this Belgian company. You see, they were forcing local, um, local people into cruel slave labor in order to produce crops and, and, and harvest materials. And it, it made him start to question the idea of what Europe actually thinks is civilized. And this is all amplified when Marlowe meets a rogue trader in the heart of darkness, a man named Kurtz who's, who's tricked a local tribe into treating him as a god and all the while he's leading them on these, these bloody raids to, to steal ivory, torturing and beheading and maiming anybody they come across. And so Marlowe finds himself caught between a rock and a hard place. Because the two dominant forces in the story, on the one hand are the labor rights violating Belgians, and then on the other there's the malevolent, maniacal, and even murderous Kurtz. And by the story... The story's end. Kurtz, who has become fatally ill, dies and he leaves Marlowe with a scrawled note he made at the last minute that said, exterminate all the brutes. And with his last dying breath, he gasps a famous line that we all know. The horror. The horror. And then the story ends shortly after that and the reader is left wondering, well, who are the uncivilized brutes in the story? The civilized people who brought nothing to this continent but colonialism and warfare and plague? Or, or the locals who went along with Kurt's violent plan and, and killing some of their own countrymen? Whose heart of darkness are we talking about here? Well, it's that very heart of darkness, one that only beats for wealth and and power and worldly influence and glory that we find beating in Pharaoh's heart this morning. See, the old Egyptian empire, not unlike the British empire of the 1800s, was the world power of the time. They're who everybody looked to. They were the, the, the most powerful in terms of, of military and, and culture and trade. They were pioneers in medicine and, and art and architecture. And they considered the Hebrew people to be the savages. The brutes. Like Conrad's subversive story, however, Scripture reminds us that worldly power and prosperity and our ideas of civilization mean nothing to a just God who sees clearly into every human heart of darkness. And last week, this God that we've been reading about, the Lord, the true God of land and sea, has assassinated all of Egypt's civilized gods, the sophisticated gods, the gods of the state, 
Those gods are dead. The ones of land and sea. The gods by which the Egyptians profiteered off the suffering of the Hebrew people. The gods by which they blaspheme the name and character of I am who I am. Those gods are dead. But again and again, tragically, we see that Pharaoh hardens his heart against all of God's, the living God's, miraculous signs and wonders. The worst tragedy of all, however, is that he resists God's work and word so much in the story that we, that we met a, a turning point in which the, the, the passage stops saying that Pharaoh hardened his heart and now we read that the Lord has hardened Pharaoh's heart. Almost as if to suggest that the Lord is finally giving Pharaoh the desires of his heart of darkness by hardening it even more. That's what Pharaoh wanted all along. And the Lord now has made it utterly impossible for him to hear and to see and to understand. And worst of all, he can't even repent. But this is just as Pharaoh wanted it. He was glad about it. And this brings us all to this third and final cycle of blows against Egypt. Not by land, not by sea, but from the skies, the heavens striking into the very heart of Egypt itself. So let's look at this first of three plagues we'll be discussing this morning with the seventh plague taking place over the course of the rest of chapter 9. Now you'll recall from last week that these plagues occur in three intensifying patterns. First, we saw this with the plagues 1, 2, and 3, and then again with plagues 4, 5, and 6. First, Moses approaches Pharaoh in the morning at his leisure and gives him fair warning about what's about to happen. And then things get a little worse when Moses goes into Pharaoh's throne room, into his palace, onto his territory, in other words, during business hours, and says, again, the Lord is serious. And then the third is worst of all because the Lord bypasses Moses and strikes Pharaoh and his people without warning, each time getting worse and worse and the consequences. And now with this seventh plague, we're about to see this cycle start over one more time. So again, we read, first the Lord tells Moses to go to Pharaoh in the morning with the same message and with ample warning. Nobody could ever read these passages and accuse God of not being patient or fair with Pharaoh. He goes with the same message. Let My people go so they may worship Me. It's not even a costly message to Pharaoh. He's not asking him to give anything. He's not asking him to do anything. Simply let the Hebrew people go so they can worship Me, this God who's been making your life a living nightmare. The message is the same, of course, but the intensity is greater. Because now, this is the longest passage of plague we've read so far. The Lord speaks in such length to Pharaoh, letting him know all the consequences. God tells Pharaoh that he's going to do all these things to him and his officials and his people so that the whole earth would know, not just Egypt, not just the Hebrews, but the whole earth 
would know that there is no one like the Lord in name or power on all the earth. And as Pastor Philip Graham Ryken reminds us, indeed, the plagues of Egypt made God famous. Made Him famous in the eyes of the world. Because even today, we remember God and His character because of these plagues. People that aren't even Christians know this story. They remember God's character, His glory, through these plagues. Christian or not, people know God through this story. And this passage is by leaps and bounds the the longest one, the longest plague passage. And the Lord is not obtuse here. He's trying to get Pharaoh's attention. Even if it takes a meteorological cataclysm to get it. This will be the worst blow against Egypt yet. But in the midst of all this, we cannot ignore the grace that we still find seasoned throughout all these places. Let's look at verse 19. Here's a word of grace and judgment. Pharaoh, the Lord says, the worst hailstorm in the history of this country is going to happen tomorrow if you don't stop acting arrogantly towards the Hebrews. With the implication being, if you do, maybe this plague can be averted. But God knows Pharaoh better than Pharaoh knows himself. He knows he's not going to change his mind. But still he says, but tell your people to bring their remaining livestock and servants under shelter so they won't die. You see that? God says, Pharaoh, I'm trying to save your life here. I'm trying to save the lives of your people. I'm giving you a chance to escape this disaster. God wants even His enemies to be saved. Church, never let anyone tell you that the God of the Old Testament is anything but good and gracious. Anybody that says He's just a mean old man, this hair-triggered, has not read the Old Testament. And they certainly haven't read it carefully if they say they have. Pharaoh and his ilk are perverse. They're philandering. They're warmongers and slave drivers. They don't deserve any amnesty by ancient standards or by modern ones. They're the villains of the story. It's so clear to see, but God's mercy, even for them, outshines His wrath. Every single time. And so He gives Pharaoh and his people warning. He says, I could have wiped you off. With the first plague, I could have wiped you all off the map, erased Egypt from the history books. After all, this is my terrain. This is my land. The Nile is my river. Memphis and Cairo are my places. The desert is my domain. I made it. And yet, despite how often Pharaoh or we defile God's creation, despite how often Pharaoh and the Egyptians or we modern people dehumanize one another, God's heart is always bursting at the seams with grace for even the worst sinners. The only thing you need, both here we see and throughout the Scriptures, the only thing that anybody needs is to hear this message and believe it. 
to repent of that old way and turn to God. And they don't find that they have to jump through hoops. They don't have to bring a certain amount of money. They don't have to get a certain level of education. They don't have to even make a, 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 a certain level of, of contributions to the people that they've wronged, even though we do see in the New Testament people like Zacchaeus. That's exactly what he does. God doesn't even require that though. He simply requires to repent and turn to Him, believe and find full forgiveness. Just like the Egyptians here, any who believe His Word can find that He'll be their shelter instead of their storm. That's true for us. If we believe Him, the storm that is is, is the Lord God, the untamable force to be reckoned with becomes a shelter for us suddenly. Folks, will you believe Him today? Will you trust His Word for you even now? Will you lay aside every distraction that tugs your heart towards that darkness that you don't want to admit that it's, it's drawn towards? Only to find that not only does God spare your life, but He even provides for it. He makes your life even more abundant. A life bound for His promised land. Sadly, you remember how Pharaoh answers these questions. And so the Lord has Moses stretch out that very same staff again. The one that we've seen do all these miracles. Stretch out that staff now towards heaven. Don't, don't hold it over the rivers. Don't strike the, the earth. Hold it over the skies above. A, a, a domain that, that humanity can't conquer. They may be able to dam up the rivers. They may be able to make buildings out of the grounds, but they can't do anything with the skies above. Stretch out your staff towards the sky and unleash thunder and rain and lightning and hail so severe that nothing has ever been like it since. And the storm that comes is so terrible it obliterates the animals, crushes the people, it demolishes their crops, and it shatters their buildings. And not Shu, the atmosphere god, nor Newt, the sky goddess, or Seth, the storm god, or, or, or anyone could stop Yahweh, the only true God over all the earth, from doing what He will do. This was such an apocalyptic event, such an end-of-the-world disaster, that Pharaoh, even Pharaoh, begins to confess his sin. He's in the foxhole here. The bombs are exploding around him. And he's doing what people love to so cartoonishly do. Oh, God, if you just get me through this, I'll let the people go. And to our shock, in verses 27 and 28, he calls Moses and Aaron and says something that we've been longing to hear him say. I have sinned. The Lord is right. My people and I are wrong. He is righteous and we are guilty. And so I beg you, please, oh the horror, make it all stop. And if you're anything like me, you're so desperately hoping that this takes. <laughs> Even knowing what's ahead, knowing that this could be the end. Oh, how sweet that would be. 
the relief that we'd feel as readers, much less people you know, so far away from it. We're not experiencing these things. Just reading about them makes our hair turn gray. Let this finally be the moment that Pharaoh's heart of darkness breaks and allows the Lord's light to shine in. That he would repent of his barbarism, of his cruelty, of his greed, and trust in Yahweh. Not any of the gods of Egypt. Not any of the powers of Egypt. But trust in Yahweh, the Lord alone. But Moses sees straight through his confession. And he says, I'll intercede for you, Pharaoh. But I know that neither you nor your officials fear the Lord still. I know you're just saying this to get out of a, the, just to cancel out the, the bad hand that you've been dealt. Even after all this. And what can we say, people? What can we cry out? when we face these same circumstances in life, other than, please, Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand and to believe Your Word. Not to become like Pharaoh, which is so much easier for us to do. And miraculously, church, even after all of our resolute stubbornness in this life, even after all our willful sin, even after you look back at the week you've had, and known that the, the, the words of your mouth and the feelings of your heart and the thoughts of your mind and the actions of your hands, or maybe the inaction of your hands, even after all that, even after you know yourself and you take a careful, honest inventory of who you are as a person, even after all the times we failed not only Him, but one another. We failed everybody. Even after that, we find a God that is still overflowing with grace for our hearts of darkness. Almost as an aside here, if you want proof of that, in verse 31 we read that although many of the crops perish, like the barley and so on, the wheat and the spelt, which is grain, the wheat and the grain survived because those crops would pop up later. See, God even preserved those crops so that Egypt filled to the brim with evil starving the Hebrews out. Even God is so gracious that He allows something to survive so they could still eat. This gives me great hope, honestly. When I, when I think about the world we live in today, our own land, that by the way, I think could show Egypt a thing or two about wickedness. gives me great hope that even in God's right chastisement, of the country in which we live, of, of the apathetic churches of this land, even then, we can still be beneficiaries of God's mercy. But Pharaoh and his officials' hearts grew harder and darker, and so this terrible cycle persists. We read in the beginning of, of chapter 10 with the 8th plague that Moses has come to Pharaoh now during business hours. Things are getting serious and no doubt he is weary just as we are from all the rinse and repeat. But God, even in judgment, gives us a, a glimmer of hope. Moses, he says, I've hardened their hearts so I can continue to show them exactly who I am. Who they deny me to be. With these signs and wonders 
But these also will serve to show your sons and your grandsons. They'll show your people of who I am. But unlike these folks, these Egyptians that have uh, chosen to harden their hearts beyond repair, this will give your people a chance to know that I am who I am. To trust and obey accordingly. And church, even Paul tells us in Romans 9, this is why God allowed this to happen. Not only to show the Egyptians who wouldn't listen, and not only to show the ancient Hebrews, but to show the church and the here and the now. These things have been uh, written and remembered and retold time and again over the centuries so that even we, all the way first, all the way here in the 21st century on the other side of the globe, might know that the Lord is the Lord. That's why we have this written record today. So that we might know the God we're dealing with. He's the one and only God. Only His Word is truth and power. And so as Moses storms into Pharaoh's court, I pray that His message would storm into the courtrooms of our hearts. No matter how hard they may have gotten this week. No matter how unbelieving they may be in this very moment. And that even, even though that may be the case, that we like, and like the Israelites who often would receive the message and then reject it, that we would let ourselves be humbled and just believe this Word and obey it. And find not judgment, but we would find grace and life. That's what's waiting on the other side of listening and obeying to God. Goodness, joy, peace forevermore. That's what He holds out for us. But Pharaoh wouldn't and indeed couldn't believe these things. So the Lord threatens a cloud of locusts to descend from the heavens and to eat every remaining thing that the hail didn't get. It's a clear threat that God's long-suffering mercy will eventually dry up if the hateful, sinful rebellion persists long enough. But the cracks in in Pharaoh's confident facade are beginning to show here. Because some of his officials break rank. You don't do that to Pharaoh, the, the Lord supreme over all the earth, as he thinks of himself. He says, why can't we just let these men go? Let them worship their God. Don't you realize that Egypt is devastated? Look around. We have hardly anything left to to lose at this point. How much more of this can we take? And for a moment, Pharaoh buckles under the pressure. That is until he asks the question about who will be going. And Moses lets him know, everyone, the Lord wants everyone, young and old, sons and daughters, even flocks and herds, Even the animals the Lord wants to go and worship. Everyone must go to the festival of the Lord and worship Him alone. And that just strikes at Pharaoh's pride so severely that he gives perhaps the the least self-aware response that he's given yet by saying to, to Moses, something that takes your breath away when you consider the audacity of it. He says, clearly, you are heading for trouble. And you are bent on evil. 
Pharaoh says that to Moses. And before Moses and Aaron can even respond, he drives them out of his own palace like dirty, rotten rats. Folks, you know what happens next. A hot easterly wind, we read. The same one, by the way, when we talked about this a couple years ago. In the book of Jonah, you remember the very end, a hot easterly wind comes and it scorches that plant in tandem with a worm that eats away at it. It takes away all of Jonah's joy and his comfort. That same wind comes blowing through Egypt, except this time, instead of one little worm, it's carrying the, the frightful and unforgiving fangs of millions of locusts. They were so thick in the land that not an inch of Egypt could be seen. All the people could see was pulsating, buzzing blackness. A swarm that devoured every shred of life that was left. And just like that, these giant grasshoppers, grasshoppers, they're not that intimidating. Maybe you don't like bugs. Grasshoppers aren't that bad. Locusts aren't that bad. I mean, they're kind of gross and bigger swarms. By themselves, they're not impressive. These things cannibalized Egypt so thoroughly that they could only believe that men, their crop god, that Nephri, their grain god, that Anubis, the guardian of the field, and Senehem, the protector against pest, God has killed those gods too. And the pantheon of Egypt is nearly dead. Egypt itself is barely clinging to life at this point, And they have no other recourse. But Pharaoh again calls for Moses and Aaron and does the only thing he thinks that he can do. He confesses his sin. He begs for forgiveness. But as the old saying goes, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Everyone knows Pharaoh is a liar. But the Lord relents. But He gives us even a foreshadowing of the judgment that's going to come. Look at verse 19. We read, Then the Lord changed the wind to a strong west wind, and it carried off the locusts and blew them where? Into the Red Sea. They drowned beneath the chaos waters of the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the territory of Egypt. And we all know the story. That's the tragic fate that awaits Pharaoh and his officials and his armies because again we read the Lord has hardened Pharaoh's heart of darkness because he would not let the Hebrews go. Well folks, we're getting to the the final plague today. The third of this plague cycle is about to complete. And again with these, there are no warning. It's just a terrible, awful judgment that awaits. And the Lord tells Moses to stretch that staff again over the land so that it is enveloped in a thick, palpable, tangible darkness. Or as the Scriptures tell us, a darkness that you could feel. Feel, I believe, not just in in your mind, but in your body, in your soul. A supernatural darkness. And just like that, a darkness covers Egypt for three days. It's so oppressive, we read. The darkness is so bad that not only can no one see one another, but it feels like they can hardly breathe. They can hardly move in this darkness. They're almost 
swallowed up in it. As if death itself has become the state of their existence. All of creation has come undone. The Lord, the God who said in the beginning of the Scriptures, let there be light as His first creative act has allowed this darkness that He dispersed at first to swallow Egypt up. So in other words, folks, the image we're supposed to get here is that God is letting Egypt turn into the nothingness that creation once was outside of His divine gift and grace. They're swallowed up in the, in the death of it all. And finally, we see the whole of Egypt reflects the state of their hearts, dark and dead. And oh, the horror, raw. The supreme God of the sun, the God of gods and Egypt is dead. He's so dead that for three days there is nothing but darkness. Nothing. Yesterday, He was dead. Today He is dead. And tomorrow He will be dead. There is no life. There is no hope. There is no help for these Egyptians. Their pantheon has abandoned Egypt and the Lord of the Hebrews stands over their corpses with His bloody sword. Only light. The only light in the land shines in Goshen with God's people. And for the final time, Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron face to face, we read. They got up close and personal this time. No communicators, no barrier. They're they're facing off with one another. But Pharaoh still doesn't get it. He says, fine, go worship the Lord. Your men can go. Your women and children can go. But... Leave your animals behind. After all this, Pharaoh's giving them so much, and yet that one thing, the thing that should cost him the least, let the animals, they're animals, let them go. He won't do it. He's always holding something back from God. I feel like that's so. so clear about who we can be as people. We give God our public persona. We try to be polite and and, and pray at meals, but there's something we're always wanting to hold back from the Lord. Even the smallest thing, Lord, you're not going to have this. I'm not going to give you this leisure time. I'm not going to give you this money. I'm not going to give you this part of myself. But God through Moses bellows back in verse 26. Not a hoof! Pharaoh, not a hoof will be left behind because we will take them. Even the animals will worship the Lord. Pharaoh's heart just implodes under the weight of his own sin at this point. And he screeches out a death threat that is essentially saying, if you ever see my face again, you're going to die. To me, it almost sounds like he speaks like He's the Lord in the Garden of Eden. And the day that you do this, you will surely die. And Moses tragically confirms what Pharaoh says in verse 29. As you have said, Moses replied, I'll never see your face again. But it's not for the reason that Pharaoh thinks. 
Perhaps the most insidious aspect of sin is that it causes us to want to hide our our faces, our hearts away from God. Sin makes us think that we can crawl into the dark recesses of our life and escape Him. Maybe we do it in shame. Maybe we're embarrassed of the people we've become. Maybe we do it in anger and hatred because we hate God and the demands He makes over His creation. Either way, we feel that we cannot face God with who we are, with the darkness that we see in our hearts. We think, like Adam and Eve, if we show our faces around Him again, we will surely die. But that's not the kind of God that we find in the Bible. Folks, instead what we find is a God that's heart is so gracious that we see it in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, what we bring to the table, if we're honest, if we can be really real here for a second, what we bring to the table are hearts of darkness. Hearts that are bent only towards ourselves, our good, on what we want alone. Hearts that will use all of our power and energy and and every breath in us to obtain more wealth and power and worship for ourselves, even when it comes at the expense of others. It's how we come into this world thinking about me and me alone. And remember, it's not just Pharaoh in Egypt who disbelieves God. It's easy to say, well, there's some people in this world that are really bad people. But think about Israel. In just a few chapters, we'll watch as Moses and Aaron and Israel are even worse about disbelieving God. Israel, the name of Israel means struggles with God. God's own people are known as the people who always are struggling against Him. Their hearts are dark and their faces are turned in shame and horror. And we're lying to ourselves if we think we're any different from them. But this Lord, that we meet here. The one who we find hovering over the face of the abysmal waters. The one that is in us and all the lands around us. The one that we find residing in the skies above. This God wasn't content for us to stay in our sin and shame forever. He came and faced us, but not with judgment. He came and faced us with His Love and forgiveness, and we see it in the human face of Jesus Christ. The face that wept for Adam's helpless race. The heart that bled for the children of Eve. For us. Even when we murdered Him on a cross, we find as He dies, He cries out, Father, forgive them! They don't know what they're doing. Friends, come to this Jesus today. His heart is not hard. His heart is not dark. His heart is not bent on Himself even, although it should be, because He's God. His heart is gentle and lowly and set on sinners like us. His smiling face shines down onto your tear-streaked one. And come and see that this Lord, this Jesus, is good. Let's pray.
Lord, bless us and keep us and be gracious to us. Make Your face shine on ours. Break our dark hearts with Your heart of perfect love and cast out all our fears so that we may worship You in joy. For it's in Jesus' name we now ask and pray all these things. Amen.